Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, Southbridge Church family. Thank you so much for joining us online today. If you're a guest, I'm glad you're here as well. If you would make a comment just in the comments to say hi, whether you're a guest or a regular attender, I'd love to be able to see that and interact with you. And then also, uh, if you're new, if you text the word new to the number that's on your screen, we've got a gift that we want to give you. And uh, we'd love to just hear from you and know that you're here with us today. And whether you're new or whether you've been joining us for a while, we've been doing this sermon series called Shift, as you just saw in the video. And what we're talking about is the world around us is shifting. We've been asking the question, how are we supposed to respond? Like, what does God want us to do in this shifting world? And we've shifted our attention at the end of this series to talk about the unseen battle that's taking place, a spiritual battle. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. I watched it this week, and it's actually not even a good movie, but it makes a good point. It's a movie called Behind Enemy Lines. It's a little bit older. It stars Owen Wilson. He, if you don't know who he is, he's in basically every Ben Stiller movie ever. And Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman was the coach in the movie Hoosiers, if you're familiar with sports movies. And what happens is that Owen Wilson is playing Lieutenant Chris Barnett. He's a naval aviator. And so he gives all the coordinates and all those things for the pilot as they're flying naval missions. And what's happening is it's the Bosnian War. And they're on a pretty boring tour. Every once in a while they have to go take pictures and usually nothing happens. And they fly over this Bosnian forest and they see some war crimes taking place. And their plane gets shot down. And they find themselves behind enemy lines. And once they're there, Lieutenant Barnett realizes his enemy is not only real and not only dangerous, but is in pursuit of him. They didn't just shoot the plane down. They wanted to come and make sure they finished the guys that were in the plane off. And so they came, and he sees them actually kill his pilot. And then he's fleeing through the forest. And, and there's all kinds of encounters coming. He's evading and trying to survive. And there's this one scene where he's calling back to, his, to the headquarters. And he's talking to his commanding officer, which is Gene Hackman. And Hackman gives him some instructions. He doesn't like them. He says no to the commands that he's given. And and then Hackman getting his attention back. And he already told him, don't use names over the radio. And he says, Barnett! He gets his attention. He says, you are a combat naval aviator. Start acting like it. And then he tells him, life's tough. I'm very sorry. You've been shot down. And he begins to tell him about his resources. And after he tells him about his resources and his training and how to apply that, then he tells him a promise. He says, we will come bring you home. Do you understand? We will come bring you home. Think about what that commanding officer did there. He reminded him of his identity. He told him about his resources. And then he gave him a promise. Believer, as we've been doing this series, we've been talking about how we have an enemy. He's real. He's dangerous. He's going around the world looking for whom he may devour. He's pursuing you wants to destroy you. There's evil. There's battles that take place in our lives. But our battles are not against flesh and blood. It's not a political battle. It's not a culture war battle. It's not an argument with your spouse battle. It's not the person who betrayed you battle. Those things are real. They really happen. But behind all of that, there's an unseen enemy. And he's got schemes to destroy you. But you have an identity. You're an ambassador in Christ. You've been bought at a price. You are not your own. You've been given resources. That's what we've been talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. All the divine resources we've been given to have victory in this spiritual battle. And you have a promise. This place is not your home. Jesus is coming for you. He's going to bring you home. But here's the problem. Many of us as followers of Jesus, we forget this is not our home. We make this place comfortable. We forget our mission. 
And I want to remind you today, we're behind enemy lines, and what we're going to talk about is how to use the resources God's given us to be successful in this spiritual battle. Jesus already won the battle. The victory is already ours. This is not a playground. This is a battleground, but we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory that Jesus already won, but you have to experience that victory, and the way you do it is by using the divine resources. We're going to talk about the last few of those today in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bible, please grab it and go to Ephesians chapter 6 with me. What's been happening in this passage of Scripture, we started looking at back in verse 10. We're told to be strong in the Lord. It's the Lord's strength that we receive. But then it tells us the resources we have. We've looked at these resources. The first one, the foundational one, the the belt of truth. And you already heard Pastor Scott Mason say that that we've been working on our It Is Written plan. That's going to be available to you today. And even in the comments, we'll put a PDF in there. But do you have an It Is Written plan? How you use God's Word when you're being attacked with temptation and struggles and, and sin and that you come to the Scriptures and use those as the belt of truth. Talked about the breastplate of righteousness. We've got to guard our hearts. It's the wellspring of life. We don't naturally go towards righteousness. We naturally go towards sin. We drift away from God. Are you pursuing righteousness? We've got to be pursuing righteousness. And the shoes of the gospel of peace. Are you ready to share the gospel? Do you love Jesus? We took one week where we talked just, just that week on the shield of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And there's these flaming darts that are coming at us from the enemy. And, and as we walk by faith, it's a, de- it's a defense even against Satan. And then last week, Pastor Dave preached a great message on the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Will you look with me today at the last few pieces of armor here? I'll start reading Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. So after telling us to be strong in the Lord, after telling us our battles not against flesh and blood, and the first four, four pieces of spiritual armor, the Apostle Paul says this, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, he applies it to himself, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here in these last few verses, we see the last few pieces of armor, and some people debate about whether prayer is a piece of armor, but it's clear whether it's a piece of armor or not, it's part of this whole passage that Paul's talking about. And with these last three things, what I think we see are three B statements, that we must be prepared mentally, we must be armed spiritually, we must be in prayer continually. And that first one, think about that, to be prepared mentally, what does he call it here? He calls it the helmet of salvation. I think most of us know what a helmet does. It protects our heads, right? But it's not just talking about physically. Remember, these aren't actual, literal things. He's using this as an image to talk about a mindset here that protects our mind. So I think most of us know what a helmet does. Last week at the outdoor service, Pastor Dave actually mentioned that in high school I played football. And some of you might have known that about me. Maybe you didn't know that about me. But you probably know all football players wear helmets. If you watch football, it just started up this weekend. If you watch a football game, players have helmets on. The helmets are to protect our heads. But what Pastor Dave didn't know, and he didn't share that last week, is that when I was on that football team, sometimes we played some teams that were in some pretty rough parts of town. In fact, I remember one game, we were headed into the game. We were still on the bus. The coach told all of us, put your helmets on, get your heads down. We were headed into the area of town. It's called Beecher. It's in in Flint, where I'm from. And we had fans that would follow us to games. They would go to different, nobody came to that game. 
and, and it wasn't because they didn't support us as a team. The reason why they wouldn't come to the game at Beecher is because they didn't think it was safe to come, to bring the family, to bring kids. So they just had us as their kids go out there with the coach, right, play these games. We would get on the bus, we'd ride, and I don't know if he heard something that week, if he knew something was going on, if they were going to throw something or worse. We just listened. He told us, put your helmets on and get down because we knew that we wanted to protect our heads. We wanted to protect our minds. But here, it's not just a physical cover. Did you see in this passage of Scripture? It's not just a helmet. It's the helmet of salvation. But here's the interesting thing about this passage. It's not talking about experiencing salvation because he's already talking to believers. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, to the saints in Ephesus. So what is it to put on the helmet of salvation? Because there are a lot of people that they think they've experienced salvation, right? Like some people think that they're a believer in Jesus Christ. They're a follower of Jesus. They've experienced salvation because they're a member of a church. Being a member of a church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Some people think because they grew up in a Christian home. Here's the reality. Maybe your parents are believers. God doesn't have any grandkids. God doesn't have grandkids. He only has children. You don't become a believer just because you're around other believers. And you don't become a believer because you go to a building. You don't become a believer because you memorize verses. It's not what you know. So are you a follower of Jesus and you become a believer in Jesus when you believe that what he did for you on the cross was sufficient to pay for your sins and you place your trust in what he did for you, your eternal destiny. You stop trusting in anything else. And if you haven't done that yet, I believe that's why God's led you to this service today. And I'm going to tell you how to trust Jesus at the end of the service. For those of you who have trusted Jesus, what he's talking about here when he talks about the helmet of salvation is not that you, continue, you keep placing your faith in Jesus as Savior over and over again. Now, once you've done that, you're in God's family. You get a new identity. You are a child of God. So what does it mean to put on the helmet of salvation? I think we see the answer to that when we look at another passage of Scripture that uses the very similar language to this armor of God passage, but it says in a little different way. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul wrote this passage as well. He says this in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here as he talks about salvation, he talks about the hope of salvation. Now that word hope in this passage doesn't mean hope like, I sure hope my wishes come true, or I sure hope, we get a snow day today, like I sure hope like something's going to happen, like we don't have any knowledge or certainty of that happening, we just kind of, I hope that some good, some uncle that I've never met gives me a bazillion dollars, like just some random hope that we have, that's not what it's talking about. It's an eager expectation, like, like you know a vacation's coming, like you know you're about to get a raise, like you know that one day something good's going to happen, your, your baby's going to be born, you're about to have a wedding ceremony, there's, a, there's an eager expectation, there's a hope towards that. There's a certainty about it. There's a hope of it. And here's the thing about this hope. When you put the helmet of salvation on, what you're doing is you're viewing life differently. You're looking at life through the lens of your salvation. It changes the way you see everything else. Have you ever had your sight altered? Or maybe you've uh, gone to an amusement park and they have those mirrors that are like, you know, tall person, skinny person, and you're the same person. You just stand in front of different mirrors and it changes your shape and changes your height and changes all those things. It changes your view because of the lens that you're looking at. Or, or if you've gone to the eye doctor and you had an eye exam, they put that big machine in front of your face and then they click it. One or two. Click, 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 click. And it's, I always get stressed, like I'm going to mess this up and have bad glasses forever. Like, I don't know. I didn't even remember what it's... One, two, one. It's like anxiety in that moment. I went to a eye doctor recently, and I made the mistake of saying that he could dilate my eyes. I don't know if you've done that or not. They put these drops in, and all of a sudden all the lights get super bright, your pupils get really big, and 
And I'm sitting there. Here's why it was a mistake. Because the doctor got caught up doing some other stuff with another patient. And I had another meeting to go to. I didn't even get to have the exam. They just dilated my eyes. Then I had to leave. I went out to the counter. And I said to the lady at the counter, listen, I'm not mad. I know the doctor's got to do some other stuff. This person probably has an emergency or whatever. But I have to go. And as I was starting to leave, they said, wait, sir, you can't leave. And I said, why? They said, do you have sunglasses? I was like, I think in the car. It's like, all right. And I said, am I okay to drive? They said, yeah, you're okay. as long as you got sunglasses. But on my way out to the car, when I opened the front doors to that building, there were these steps that were there. They were white steps. The brightest thing I've ever seen. I thought my eyeballs were melting in my head when I saw these steps. Now, here's the reality. On my way into that building, I saw the same steps. But I hadn't had the eye drops. The eye drops changed the way I saw everything after that moment. What Paul's talking about here when he said to put on the helmet of salvation, the hope of salvation, is that it changes the way we view all of life, all of circumstances, all of our past, all of our present, all of our future, everything that's happening. And you know what that does? That deflects the, the flaming darts that we've talked about, the attacks of the enemies. When we first were talking about changing clothes, there was one Sunday where I put on a bunch of clothes and I brought this helmet. I don't know if you remember this or not. I quickly changed outfits, and uh, one of the things I had was this helmet. I borrowed it from a friend of mine who was a Marine, and he had this helmet. His name Andrew Kratz, and when I went to his house to get the helmet, I noticed he had a collection of helmets from World War I all the way to Vietnam, several helmets, about 15, maybe 20 helmets that he had, and some of them were American, some of them were not, and they all had, they were used helmets. They all had marks on them. And as I looked at them, I thought, that's a lot like our salvation. Because every one of those helmets has a unique story. So you look at a mark, and like, say, a Vietnam helmet, and it's dented up. Now, I don't know what the story is. Did the soldier have a long day, and he threw his helmet down? Did he get shot at, and it deflected a bullet? That'd be cool. So he still made it. Did he, did he fall off a cliff, running from somebody? Like, I don't know what the story is, but every dent, every scratch, every nick that was there, there was a story with it. You think about it with our salvation. We all have a story. Some of you grew up in church. You've always gone to church. You believed in Jesus at a young age. You followed Jesus. You never got involved in some deep, dark sin. And, and you have a story of preservation. shows God's power. Some of you were prodigals. You grew up in church, and then you went away, and then you came back. And shows God's grace and second chances. Some of you were in a mess, and maybe in prison time, like all kinds of stuff. And some of your stories, and God pulls you out of that, and it shows God's power of redemption and we all have a story, and everybody's story is unique, just like each one of those helmets. But you know the other thing about those helmets? Is they all played the same role in those people's lives. And there's a similarity in all of our salvation that when we look at our past, it's all the same. Even though the facts are different, the details are When we look through the lens of the gospel, the helmet of salvation, what we see is the blood of Jesus Christ has washed us clean, and what God sees when he looks at us is his son, Jesus. When you look at the future, you think about the future, our past is pure. Our future is secure. There's nothing that can change your future if you're a follower of Jesus. You didn't do anything to save yourself. You can't do anything to unsave yourself. But do you know one of the enemy's attacks is trying to get you to doubt your salvation? Whether you grew up in church and you never did anything that people would consider super bad and the enemy comes to you and says, Are you sure? what did you really repent from? You haven't really. And he wants to get you He wants to derail your faith. Some of you have had a, a difficult past and some things have been done to you or you've done some things and say, he didn't really save you from that. How can you be forgiven from that? And it doesn't matter which story you have. The attacks come and the doubts come. Can I tell you what the scriptures say about your future? It is secure. The Apostle John says this in 1 John chapter 5. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son 
of God does not have life. So if you have Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, you've got eternal life. Jesus himself says this in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life. Eternal life's a gift. You didn't earn it, he gave it to you. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Would you put on the helmet of salvation? You see how it deflects the, those, those accusations, those flaming darts of doubt, those things that make you want to be discouraged, even depressed. You start to view your future as secure, your past as pure, but what about the present? What about right now? And like all of us, like right, we can all become kind of rattled by life. Whether it's maybe you have a prodigal child that's walked away, or maybe you have an unsafe spouse that won't even, won't even watch a service with you online. Maybe you've got a difficulty going on with your job. Many people have lost jobs during this pandemic. Maybe it's the virus and all the tension of that. Maybe you've lost some relationships over that. Maybe you've been betrayed. Like there's all kinds of things, infertility, difficulties, stuff that happens in life. And how does the gospel, how do, like I know that, it, that maybe when you think about the cross, you think, yeah, I'm, I'm going to heaven someday. Or, yeah, I believe what happened in the past, but how does that apply to right now? Well, just think about if you put on the helmet of salvation, start looking at your life through a gospel lens, what do you see when you look at the cross? Some of you might say, well, I see forgiveness. I've been forgiven. That's true. So I see a demonstration of love. He, became, he knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteous of God. That's true. It's theologically true. Those are true things. Have you ever thought about putting yourself in the shoes of the 11 disciples that were there when Jesus was being nailed to the cross? Putting yourself in the, in the life of that moment. Like, think about that. What do you think it was like for them? They left everything. Three years they've been following this guy. They believe he is God in the flesh. They believe that he is the Messiah that's been promised in the Scriptures. They've left houses. They've left families. They've left businesses. They've left everything to follow him. And now they see him being murdered? What do you think that looks like? And then three days later, even when the tomb's empty, is it any wonder that Thomas says, I don't believe unless I see? Like, you, you and I would probably say the same thing. Like you just witnessed the worst possible... You believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and you just watched him be murdered? Can it get any worse than that? But then, what does God do? He takes the worst circumstances and uses it for the greatest blessing. He shows us Romans 8.28 is actually true. That God works all things. That means your prodigal. The healing you've been praying for that hasn't come. The things going on at your job. Whatever the things that rattle you in life, He uses all things. He works them together for good for those who love Him. And we can look at circumstances in the Bible and see stories in the Bible where that happened. You know, a guy like Abraham and his infertility. Do you think that Abraham was thinking, God's just setting this up for a great work? No, he's thinking, why can't I have a kid? God didn't keep his promise. Why is this happening in me, my life? He's looking at life, and life rattles you. But you and I know that God's going to use the infertility in his life, the most difficult circumstances, to be the greatest blessing, to be the father of our faith. We know when we read the Bible, because we see it from Scripture perspective, we're not living it, but for 400 years, Israelites are in bondage. That's going to be the salvation moment in the Old Testament. God's setting it up. He's working behind the scenes. Even when you're not seeing that happening, he's working that he actually keeps his promises. Now, if you look at those things from a cross perspective, from a gospel perspective, from the helmet of your salvation perspective, and you see through that lens, you can trust that he's always doing that, even when you don't know the outcome. That he's actually working in those moments. See, to put on the helmet of salvation is to view life through this lens of the gospel. 
And what is your salvation? Yeah, we each have a unique story, but he's been doing the, he's doing the same thing. He's cleansing our past, he's securing our future, and he's showing us he's even working in the midst of the circumstances we're in right now in the present. We need to be prepared mentally for the spiritual warfare that's taking place. And the things that we see is not all that's happening. We have an unseen enemy that's at work, and he's throwing doubt, he's throwing difficulty, he's throwing disease, he's throwing disaster at us, all these things coming at us. View it through the lens of your salvation, and you're prepared mentally for what's happening. But not only be prepared mentally, you need to be armed spiritually. You see the next thing that was said here in this passage? It's not just a helmet of our salvation. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Bible is an incredible and unique book. I love this quote. It's by an unknown source. It talks about the Bible. It says this, There are words written by kings, by emperors, by princes, by poets, by sages, by philosophers, by fishermen, by statesmen, by men learned in the wisdom of Egypt, educated in the schools of Babylon, trained at the feet of rabbis in Jerusalem. It was written by men in exile, in the desert, in shepherds' tents, in green pastures, and besides still waters, among its authors we find an ex-tax gatherer, a herdsman, a gatherer of sycamore fruit. We find poor men, rich men, statesmen, preachers, captains, legislators, judges, and exiles. The Bible is a library full of history, genealogy, ethnology, law, ethics, prophecy, poetry, eloquence, medicine, sanitary science, political economy, and the perfect rules for personal and social life. And behind every word is the divine author, God himself. Pastor Dave preached a whole message on the Word of God last week, and my, my favorite statement that he made in that whole sermon was, it's the only book you can read and interact with the author while you're reading it. The Bible is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword we read in the book of Hebrews. And here you come to this passage in Ephesians chapter 6, and we've already talked about what's going on. Paul's in chains. He's in prison. And he's sitting there, and he's probably chained to a Roman soldier, and he's looking at this soldier and he's given us this imagery of the, the divine resources we've been given, the helmet and the belt and the breastplate and, and all the shoes. And, but when he starts thinking about how do I share the word of God, he talks about the sword, which I think is pretty cool because swords are pretty cool. And I brought one. I've got my own personal sword. I hang this in my office here. And uh, the reason why uh, I think a sword is cool, not just because uh, swords are cool, which I think they are, but this particular one um, given to me, much like those helmets, has a story that goes with it. The story of my sword is it was given to me when I graduated with my doctorate. I had gone through with a group of guys and a cohort, and we had prayed with each other, challenged each other, kept each other accountable, encouraged each other to do hard things and different assignments that God had given us. And, and at the end of it, our mentor, through that cohort, gave us each one of these swords with some challenging words. But the sword's good and it's bad. I'll tell you the bad thing about the sword first. The bad thing about the sword is it's never actually seen battle. And the sword isn't supposed to just hang on a wall. It hangs on a wall in my office. It's never seen combat at all. And I was thinking about that as I heard Pastor Davian preach on the Word of God last week, and I thought, how that's so true in so many of our lives. That we know the Bible. That we've memorized parts of the Bible. That we've learned parts. We believe parts of the Bible. But if we don't actually put it into practice, it's like we never take it into battle. But see, here's the reality about a sword, is it's not meant to just be studied. It's not meant just to be looked at or sharpened. It's not just supposed to be a decoration. Some of us, that's how we use it, right? Like we, we bring the Bible to church, we never even open it. We just carry it so people think we're spiritual. Or, or you know, we just have it around. Or it holds papers down somewhere on a desk that we have. Or it shows our coworkers that we know Jesus. Or we go to church. But 
We're not using it. We're not putting it into practice. A sword's meant to be used, meant to go into battle. Ah, there we go. Use it like applying it. The Bible says in James chapter 1, just reading today, James chapter 1 says, don't just be hearers of the word, but doers. You know what it says at the end of that? We quote that part a lot. We don't oftentimes say the last part. Or you deceive yourself. And many of us, we, we know things about the Bible, about the sword, but if we're not applying them, we're not putting into practice, then we're not using, we're not wielding the sword. But you know one of the things that I told you there's a good thing and a bad thing? That's the bad thing. The bad thing is that many of us have swords, we don't use them. The good thing about this one that was given to me, it's got this verse on it. The guy who gave it to us put verses on them. Mine has 1 Chronicles chapter 11. It talks about a guy named Benaniah who goes and chases a lion into a pit on a snowy day and kills the lion and the encouragement, the challenge of the verses to, to be courageous. And you know what? We can do courageous things when we start looking at what the Bible actually does in people's lives, in our own lives as we apply it to ourselves and in other people's lives as we use it as, as the offensive weapon, the clearly offensive weapon that's in, the, in all this armor that's right here. And I think about all the things that the Bible does. I remember when I got my first Bible given to me. I was a senior in high school, had just trusted Christ as my Savior, 18 years old, partying, and, I, and the guy who led me to Jesus, he knew what I was struggling with. And he put a verse on the front of it. It's from Psalm 119. It says this, Psalm 119, verse 11, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it, it being your way, according to your word. The Bible is our weapon against sin and that struggle with temptation. You want purity? You want, to fight? you want to pursue the breastplate of righteousness? You need the sword. These go together. Or some of you struggle maybe with decisions in life and not sure what to do, with where to live, what church to go to, what job to have. And How do you make decisions? How do you know? Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I already mentioned some of you got prodigals and some of you got unsaved spouses and some of you have people, you got your one that you're praying for, that you want to come to Christ, right? And So you convince them? You can be super kind to them. The Bible is what promises it won't return void. Think about a guy like Peter. Peter, he pulls out a sword one time to try and defend Jesus from stopping from going to the cross, cuts a guy's ear off. That doesn't work. It's a physical sword. But you see him a little while later in Acts chapter 2, and he's preaching from the Bible, and he's telling people, the Bible says the Messiah was going to come. The Bible says you were going to kill him. You killed your Messiah. Do you know what it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37? They were cut to the heart. Do you know why? Because the Bible, God's word, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It doesn't just cut through flesh and blood, bone and marrow. It cuts to our souls. It transforms our It actually changes people. And those people were then chained. They repented. That was the beginning of the church. It started with the apostles' teaching from the, the sword of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that empowers the words of God to transform our lives. That words that were written thousands of years ago can apply to your life today, right now. I had one professor in seminary used to always say, I don't care how many times you've been through the Bible. I want to know how many times has the Bible been through you. Are you using your sword? I'm not asking if you know it. I'm not even asking if you're holding one right now. But do you apply it to your life? Do you share it in the lives of others? That's the sword. It's meant for battle. You've got to be armed spiritually. You've got to be prepared mentally. You've got to be in prayer continually. Look at what the Apostle Paul says at the end here. In verses 18 through 20, Paul says this, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
Now here, Paul doesn't use an image from the, the Roman soldier's armor. And so some people say, well, this isn't a piece of the armor, but it's clear this is still part of that thought process. And what Paul's doing here is he's tying, is bringing everything together. Like, how do all these things work together? It's through prayer. It's prayer that energizes. It's prayer that empowers these things to happen for the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the, the shield of faith, like all those things tied together here with prayer. And there's a lot that could be said about prayer. There's four alls in our passage. It says, with all prayer, all the saints, all perseverance, all times. Like, there's, all, there's these alls that are here, but... What I love about what Paul does here with prayer is he gives us a new vision for prayer, many of us. Because if you think about it, what many of us, when we think about prayer, like just think in your small group. I don't know if you're in a small group now or not. If you want to be in a small group, just hashtag small group in the comments. But in your small group, when the small group leader says, does anyone have prayer requests? What do do we do as Christians often? Comes to you, nothing bad's happening in your life, no doctor's appointments, nobody you know has got that stuff. I'm good. I won't say anything. Or it's, you know... Aunt Susie's ankle's broken. Can you pray for this gallbladder surgery? I know a friend who's got this. And, and what we implicitly start teaching each other is that prayer is just for ailments. Prayer is just for problems. Maybe they're relational problems. Maybe they're emotional problems. Maybe they're physical problems. And, and that's a piece. But it's such a narrow view of prayer. What Paul shows us here is that prayer is wartime communication. I like how John Piper says it. He calls it it's a wartime walkie-talkie. Now, that's a little dated on the illustration. Probably you brought up the date for technology. But the idea is you're connecting with command center. Piper says that the, the problem is we treat prayer more like it's an intercom. And then we talk about the comforts that we need and make things pleasing and safe over here. On the, and we forget about our mission. And so what, what he's pointing out is we forget this place is not our home, that we're in a battle. But it, if you served in the military, if you served in the military, thank you so much for your service, whatever branch you were in. If you haven't served in the military... You've probably at least seen a war movie or a war television show. The Navy SEALs have become very well known over the past five, ten years. Maybe you've seen a you know, SEAL Team show or SEAL Team 6 or whatever SEAL show that's out there. And you think about when they call back to home base. They're not always just calling back, hey, Stanley broke his ankle. Like, send a medic. They can do that. That's a reason to call back. Think about different reasons why you call back. And we see them in this passage. I'm going to call back because we're making progress. We've, hit a st- we've got a mission. And there's checkpoints. We went past a checkpoint, we're going to connect back and let them know where we're at in our progress. What about, what about praying with praise? You have victory over sin one day. Thank you, God, for the empowerment to do that. Thank you for the shield of faith. Thank you for the sword of the Spirit. Thank you for the resources that we've been given right here in this passage. Think about sometimes a SEAL team, they call, maybe they get off track or there's some things have changed from the intelligence that they were given. They, they want a, a bigger picture of what's happening. Give us some guidance. What is the drone saying above? Follower of Jesus, of course we pray seeking guidance. Or, or, or maybe we just need strength. You get to a spot where you realize you just can't do it. You, you saw back in verse 10, right? In verse 10 it said that we, that we battle not with our strength but with the strength of the Lord. You, where does that strength come from? You, the, the, the means of receiving that empowerment is through prayer. But, but the thing I love the most about what Paul says in this passage aren't the different things that he prays for, but it's what he doesn't say. Like, if you put yourself in his shoes, or his sandals, like, think about for a second. If you're in Paul's situation, he's chained to a Romans, you're in prison. What do you, if I said, if I wrote you a letter and said, hey, how would you like an email? Hey, how would you want me to pray for you while you're in prison? You're probably going to say, pray that the judge lets me out. Pray that I'll be safe while I'm in here. Pray that they give me the meal that I want on Friday. Like, I don't know. Usually we talk about our comforts, securities, safeties. That's not, Paul doesn't say that he wants release. He doesn't say he wants comfort. He doesn't say he wants safety. Did you see what he said? He says, pray that I'll be bold. Prayer is a reminder of the mission. And then you think about what's happening historically. 
historically here, we know that Nero's emperor. Nero's actually the emperor when about 14 of the 27 books are either written or partially written in the New Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. 14 of them are written while Nero is emperor. If you know who Nero is, Nero, uh, here's a short history lesson. He's awful. He's awful for everybody. Not just Christians, but he hates Christians. Like if you were in his way, he viewed you as an obstacle, he'd kill you. He killed his wife. He killed his stepbrother. He had his mom beaten to death. Like this guy's terrible. And he hates Christians. You read historically. He puts uh, skins of wild animals on Christians and sets dogs after them. There's stories, repeated stories, that when he'd have parties at his house at night, he'd take Christians, he'd put them on a stake, kill them on the stake, burn them alive on a stake to light, to illuminate his parties. He'd crucify them. With that in mind, Nero's emperor, Paul doesn't say, I want out of here. I want safety. I want release. He says, I'm on... He knows he's behind enemy lines. He knows his identity. He said, I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I'll be bold as I ought to be bold. Pray for this mission. Can I tell you something, believer? You have an identity, believer. You're an ambassador in Christ. You might think that you're just a police officer, that you're just a doctor, that you're just a lawyer, that you're just a teacher, you're just a janitor, you're just a salesperson, you're just a manager, but let me tell you something. You're God's representative. And whatever workplace you have and whatever relationships you have, God has put you strategically in your exact spot at your exact time in history to be his representative. You have a new identity. This world is not our home. We are behind enemy lines. And you have a promise. He's coming. He's going to bring you home. But in the meantime, you use the resources he's given you to experience victory while you're behind enemy lines. Are you ready? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I told you that I'd tell you how you can do that. Here's what you need to do. Let's place your faith in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Acknowledge your sin, that you need a Savior. You need help. You can't save yourself. And then you want Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. And then he did what he needed to do for that to be a reality when he died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead and he's offering you eternal life. You just have to receive the gift. If you want to receive that gift, will you pray for me? Pray with me. Father, I come before you right now. And I acknowledge my sin before you. I believe that your son Jesus died for my sins. And right now, in this moment, I want to ask Jesus Christ to be my Savior. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you are a follower of Jesus, let me just pray for you, that you would have the boldness that Paul says he wants you to pray, pray for each other, that we'd pray for together for these things. Father, I pray, I pray right now for believers in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you give them the boldness to live for you, to live different than this world has ever seen before. There are people that have never heard about your son Jesus. They've never seen genuine Christianity lived out. I pray for the people that are real genuine followers of yours that they would live that out before others, that people would be drawn to you, that you would bring dead people into spiritual life. People that are, that are caught in their sins, that you'd bring them to freedom, that you'd set captives free, that you'd open the eyes of the spiritually blind, and that you'd use our lives to do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.